Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. Once again, God's holy word. This is the account of the death of John the Baptist. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, we come before your word now and we ask that you would see fit to feed us with the heavenly food that we so desperately need. We know that only by your Spirit can we understand truly this word. So give life to us. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Congregation, beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is the relationship of the kingdom of God to death? And what does our membership and place in the kingdom of God teach us about our attitude towards death, towards the death of John the Baptist, the death of Jesus Christ, and our own death? These are the things that we consider together this morning. The genre of tragedy, known most famously through William Shakespeare and the many great tragedies that he wrote, that through this kind of, of a play, we are confronted with the harsh truths about our world. The idea of seeing these great tragedies is that it teaches us something and it, it, you can never fully see the world in the same way again, confronted with these harsh truths, and then it, of course, forms in us new convictions and new ways to look at things. Romeo and Juliet, perhaps most famously, you learn many things, but you learn there, right? Love stories don't always have the happiest earthly ending. In plays like Hamlet, we see the way in which a desire for revenge uh, and the uh, 
ubiquity of human sin, the kind of tangled web that it weaves and how much destruction it leaves in its wake when, when we desire to take our own revenge. These plays would often end in, in death, and they often confront the kind of hope that you may want to place in this world, even though this world and this life so often ends in painful and miserable ways. This is something of, of a tragedy, a tragedy relative to John's followers and to Jesus' followers, whatever is kind of brewing at this point in Jesus' life, what is, what is bubbling up and, and about to explode is now confronted with this death of this one who has had such a central part in pointing to the ministry of Jesus. And so all of the followers of John and even the followers of Jesus would have been confronted with questions of what does this mean and what do we take from this? It was a a big deal. But what we learn is not what the natural mind would, would expect to learn. And the response of Jesus is perhaps not what we have, would have expected to be. They, they go and they tell Jesus, and he doesn't seem to address it. At least Matthew doesn't record any direct response of Jesus to this. It doesn't necessarily move him to any great or grand program of action. He doesn't seek to immediately take revenge in the name of John the Baptist, his cousin and his forerunner, what some maybe would have seen as kind of his, his number two in whatever program he was making in the world. And so this, this passage teaches us about the relationship of the kingdom of God to death, the relationship of the kingdom of God to the, the kingdoms of this world. And it teaches us about the, the joy and the faith we can have insofar as Jesus teaches us how to approach these things in him. And it leaves us with really three, three commands, three things that we must do. The first is this, we must live in Christ's death. We must find all of our life in the death of Jesus Christ and center it upon that, not to the exclusion of the resurrection, but through his death to the resurrection, we must live in the death of Christ, as that great hymn says, here in the death of Christ I live. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, we must die to ourselves. We must die to ourselves. We must die to our preferences and our law, and the way that we want to shape our lives and, and conform everything about our lives to God and Jesus Christ and His Word. And thirdly, we must die in the Lord. So we must live in Christ's death, we must die to ourselves, and we must die in the Lord. Let us take a look at God's Word together. First, let us Think about these characters we find in this kingdom tragedy. Who are the, the characters? Well, all of the characters we find in this story point to a certain kind of relationship to the truth and the reality of the kingdom of God. They represent different things. And, and in some ways, I'm not going to say that this is really embedded in the meaning of the text, but in some ways they illustrate what Jesus has taught us in chapter 13 the kinds of responses that you will see to the message of the kingdom of heaven, like in the parable of the sower. So first we, we have John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? Well, he is he's a man of faith. He is a man of service, 
a man whose life became about serving the one who is greater than he. The man who fell down before Jesus in, in humility, an acknowledgement of his unworthiness. I'm not worthy to tie your shoes, Jesus. A man of faith, a man shaped by the, the insight of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus says in chapter 13 that the kingdom is about the one who has received the insight to it, to see its value, and who is willing to sell all that he has to gain this kingdom. That is what John the Baptist had. He, he sold it all, didn't he? He's a man shaped truly by the reality of the kingdom. He, he spoke truth with clarity and, and conviction. Uh, speaking to and about Herod, this is Herod Antipas, the, the son of Herod the Great. And he spoke with regard to, to his situation, saying that his being married to Herodias, the wife of his brother, notice that in this text she is not called uh, the wife of Herod, she is called the wife of, of Philip, his still-living half-brother. And so John adopts this prophetic voice to this ruler in the land, saying, you ought not to be doing this. This is a great wickedness. You are breaking the law of God by doing this. We have a little bit more insight in this in Mark chapter 6. It was Herod, we read in verse 17, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your uh, brother's wife. John knows, this is kind of an interesting uh, thing for us to consider as the church. We don't live in the Old Testament theocracy, where religion is sort of part of the, the, the warp and woof of everything that happens in the, 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 the civil sphere. But the church has this, is to have this prophetic voice towards the, the, the leaders of the land, that uh, righteousness exalts a nation and wicked rulers are a scorn and a shame to their people. So the church is still to have a, a prophetic voice to all of these things. So he speaks powerfully to this. You should not be doing this thing. He does not waver in the midst of, of trial or, or temptation. Again, that kingdom mindset. In chapter 6 of Mark, we read that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So it seems as if when John was in prison, they had this ongoing discourse, and Herod would even go and, and speak to John the Baptist while he was in prison to hear all that, that he had to say. And so John probably would have sensed that if he changed his tune in regards to his marriage— in regards to Herod's marriage, sham of a marriage, then Herod would probably let him go. He feared John. He saw him as righteous and, and holy. So does he do that? Just change what you say. Just say, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Herod might have let him go. He does not do that. And then finally, he regards his life as little value in comparison to what he gains in Christ. His life is of little value compared to what he gains in Jesus Christ. What do we see in John? The insight of the kingdom. A heart that has seen with the eyes of faith what one gains through Jesus Christ and all that he gives. Herodias embodies uh, a ruthless wickedness, a rebellion against God and, and his authority. In some ways, 
is like the, the hard heart, the, the path of the parable of the sower, the hard heart into which the truth of God does not sink. It's cracked and hard like concrete. She believes that she can take control of her problems, that she can eliminate her problems through sheer force of will. She wants to have John the Baptist killed. She is a master manipulator, having both her illegitimate husband and her daughter at her beck and call, using them to accomplish all of her unlawful goals. She embodies so much of the opposite, uh, of the opposite thinking of the kingdom of God. Earthly people believe that they can rearrange the circumstances of their lives, that they can change fundamentally the things about their life through sheer force of will. And this finds its apex in a heart like Herodias. Why does she want the head of John the Baptist on a platter? Because she says, well, that will be the end of that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And you see that the, the, the natural earthbound thinking of all of that. Was that the end of all of this for Herodias? No, it is not. As God's people, how do we live? We live with a fundamental conviction that everyone's sins will find them out. God sees all, He knows all, and as His creatures, we answer to Him. Children, this is a very important lesson. Uh, When I was growing up, You probably won't be surprised to know that I failed a lot of tests and quizzes in school. And what happens when you fail a test or a quiz in school? It means you haven't done your work well enough. You haven't studied. And so what do you have to do? There needs to be some accountability to that. And uh, so what would you have to do? You would have to take that home, that failing grade, show it to your parents and have your parents sign it and bring it back. And one of the ways that you would be tempted to get rid of this problem was, well, if I just don't show my parents and I either forge their signature or throw it away, then it makes this problem go away. Now, is that true, boys and girls? No. It's not true. It probably won't be true in the context of that particular class. Something will happen. You will pay for it more dearly in the future. And ultimately... Everything we do is known by God, and all sins will be dealt with in this life or in the next. Herodias embodies this worldly thinking and this thinking of rebelling against God. Salome, her daughter, is a passive character, but she's the one who who dances at, uh, at the party. The text does not say explicitly that this was a seductive dance, but uh, most commentators think that's probably what it was. I like what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, we can readily guess what kind of dancing would please Herod. That's true. But she is really a a passive character, used and uh, manipulated by her mother, and then uh, she triggers something in Herod. And Herod is an interesting case. He's led by his flesh, both in response to this dance and in taking a wife he had no business taking. He sees something he wants and he takes it. He is unwise as a ruler in many ways. We see it in the history of of his rule, but he makes a rash promise here. He's an unwise person. He is weak. 
He's weak as it relates to John. He fears the people, so he cannot deal with John himself. He fears John in some sense, so he's unhappy when uh, Salome makes this request to bring him, bring her the head of John the Baptist. And then he finally decides to go through with his oath. Why? Because weak men fear being seen as weak. So he's a weak man. He's a foolish man. He's a fleshly man. He's unwise. But he has a conscience, doesn't he? There's something operating in him. He's listening to John. He's saying something's going on here. He doesn't want to to have John killed, but he can't say no. And then when he hears of Jesus, he fears that John has come back to life. His conscience is working. Now, the truth of God has not sunk down to the point of actually giving life to to Herod, but the truth of God is operating at some level in him, and that's a reminder to us about the conscience. Why, Why do we proclaim the gospel of Christ? Why do we seek to get the message out? Because we know that every man and woman created as the image of God has the law of God written on his or her heart and has a conscience. Even though the the image is marred and stained by sin, yet it is operating at some level. And J.C. Ryle says this, "Many, Many a sermon and a lesson will yet rise again, and he who preached or taught it is lying like John the Baptist in the grave. Thousands know that we are right, and like Herod, dare not confess it. In the parable of the sower, there are those who Uh, who have taken interest in the Word of God, but faith does not endure. Why? Because of the the pleasures of this world, the cares of this world. Herod is blinded by his political ambitions. He's blinded by his fleshly weakness. He's blinded by being driven through the, the, the pleasures of this world and of his flesh. And in many ways, this is these are the kinds of things that Jesus has taught us. There are those who will bear fruit. The seed will sink down into their heart and they will bear fruit. It will change them. There are those who will have some relationship to the church and to the kingdom. They may even receive it with joy, but it will not stand up to the test of suffering. There will those who will hear this word, but the the cares of this world will choke out all that they have heard and maybe initially started to believe. And there are those whose hearts will be hardened and cracked and and hard like concrete. You see all of this in the characters of this story, this kingdom tragedy. Now, some people may say, well, uh, Herod had to keep this oath. You remember Jephthah in Judges, don't you? There are all of those conversations. You know, Jephthah made this vow, and he comes home. He made this promise to the Lord, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that I see. Right? He, so he makes a rash vow, a terrible vow that nowhere in the teaching of God would, would you have thought that this is something that you could make. This is what pagans did. When they were in a difficult situation, they said, they cried out to their God and they said, uh, if you get me out of this, I will offer to you the first thing that walks out of my house when I get home, right? And some people say, well, but yeah, but Jephthah made that promise to the Lord. So when his daughter comes out, he really was bound to keep that promise. No, he wasn't. Sinful and rash promises and oaths and vows should should neither be made nor kept. A rash vow is to be repented of. They are neither to be made nor kept. It is better to repent of a foolish vow than to keep it and compound the sin. But he cannot say no. 
And so he carries this out at uh, the wishes of his stepdaughter, perhaps, or the daughter of Herodias, maybe more accurately. Herodias has achieved her goal, and she thinks, again, this is the end of it. She sees the, the, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Kind of shocking to read this in the Word of God, isn't it? Gruesome and, and gory. And she says, well, that is the end of, of that. There's tradition in the church that there may have been other things that went on when Herodias received this head of John the Baptist. There were other things that happened at the party, which is perhaps not hard to believe to be true. So does it spell the end of the kingdom? Has Jesus' mission been severely weakened by the death of John the Baptist? We can imagine that his disciples who went to bury his body, kind of interesting that the text says uh, they took his body and buried it because there was still, that's not fully John there, the totality of who he is. And we believe that he is now in the presence of Christ and he will one day receive a body that will endure forever. But you can understand that they would go to Jesus seeking some sort of an answer. Why did this happen and what does this mean? What would have been the reaction of those who followed Jesus upon hearing this? Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verse 9. He says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John is the forerunner of the kingdom. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Amazing the respect that Jesus had for John the Baptist. So people may have said, well, maybe this will move Jesus into action. This is kind of the moment we've been waiting for. He's going to go and claim some throne, going to overthrow someone, and then he's going to restore the kingdom of, of Israel to its glory, and even more, if he is the Messiah, if he is the one who was to come. Perhaps others, thinking more cynically, will say, well, if he does nothing, then we know that he is a fraud. If this doesn't move him to action, then nothing will. But John's disciples go and they tell Jesus about this. And in going to Jesus, they do something that's wiser than they know for sure. Because it is Jesus to whom we look, to whom we go for the answer for this death and for all deaths. Jesus, we can imagine, perhaps he hears about his cousin's death. He may grieve in certain ways. Perhaps he was just as sad and grief-stricken as he was with Lazarus. Perhaps this made him very sad and grievous. But Jesus knows something that no one else knows at this point. He knows this is the way. He knows that this is the path to redemption. This is the way forward. The way downward is the way forward towards death, to the heart of the problem of the human condition. John the Baptist is operating here as the, the forerunner to the kingdom of God, and, and he does yet another thing that paves the way, sets the tone for Jesus. For just as John, Jesus will stare into the face of a weak, pathetic, earthly ruler, a man who's scared of the reaction of the people, 
And he, Pilate, will look into the eyes of Jesus and will sense a righteousness that puts his very life to shame, just as Herod Antipas did when he looked at John John the Baptist. And just as John, Jesus will mostly remain silent. He will accept an unjust sentence and he will have a sacrificial end to a selfless life. John paved the way for Jesus, even in this way, so that Jesus, in ways truly unlike John, that go beyond John, could give himself to effect a salvation that John could never effect himself. A salvation that we could never earn ourselves. And it is in that death, brothers and sisters, that we live. The death of Christ was a scandal a tragedy, a thing unthinkable to anyone who is thinking rationally, but what is it? It is our hope. It is our plea. It is the solid ground on which we stand. The horrible nature of what we read about here, the the, the gory nature of what happens here in, in Herod's palace, We cannot shrink from that just as we cannot shrink from the true realities of what happens at the cross and the kind of suffering and torture that our Lord endures on behalf of sinners. We look to that and we we read of it and our heart breaks and yet at the very same time we have this great paradox, don't we? That it's only because of that death we can live. That it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we have a plea. Jesus hears of this and he says, this is the way. This is the path that I must go. And so it doesn't move him to action in any way different than he was already headed to the cross. Why? Because it tells us something about the depth of our problem, doesn't it? The death of Jesus Christ and his his understanding that this is the path, this is the way of this kingdom, tells us something about the depth of the problem of sin. My sin needed something this drastic. We read that the, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Greeks. Why? Because, well, the Messiah is not going to be murdered, killed, unjustly. That's a scandal to Jews. And uh, to Greeks, this is foolishness that your king has been killed. You serve a, a crucified king. But why do we believe it? Because my sin needed something that drastic. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more tonight. This was in this morning's Tribune. It's a, about a book. It's called Good Inside. The headline reads, Our Kids Are Good even when behavior is bad. The author says this, there's bad behavior in our kids, there's poor decisions, there are words and moments and actions driven by hurt or fear or defensiveness or an unmet need, but these are things we do, not who we are, and none of them change our internal goodness. There's a a mentality that is shot through the world and the culture that we actually don't have a problem deep within us. 
We actually don't have something fundamentally wrong with us. Everything that we do that's wrong is the result of some external force, some factor that's operating against us. We were put in a situation where we had to act that way. And so we no longer have the moral courage to look into the depth of our hearts and see the truth of it. But a couple things. If that's true, if we are really all good inside, how do you explain two things? First is the undeserved curse that is shot through this world. Death, destruction, disease, and suffering. If all of us are fundamentally good in our hearts, then how do you explain all of the suffering and terrible things that happen in this world? And what would that make God? That good people are living under the shadow of an undeserved curse. What would that make God? That's the first thing you would have to explain. And then secondly, you would have to explain this. How can you explain that that God the Son is sent to take on human flesh so that he might go to the cross to die if we don't have something that's that wrong with us? See, we do, brothers and sisters. And it's in the death of Christ that we live. It's in the death of Christ that we live. And so when Jesus hears all of these things, how does he endure? He looks to his joy. He looks to the joy that's set before him. And what does he do? He continues to walk in faith. And that teaches us something about what we are to do. Just as John did, just as Jesus did, in all of our tragedies, if our tragedies are to become kingdom tragedies, look to the joy that you have in Christ and continue to walk in faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of God. So we too look to the joy that we have in Christ in all of our tragedies, which can become kingdom tragedies if we are clinging to Christ. We look to the joy and we walk in faith. But two more points of application as we close. We live in Christ's death and we understand the reality of what's going on there because that is how desperately we needed a Savior. That's number one. And then uh, secondly, uh, that we understand not only do we uh, live in Christ's death, but we die to ourselves. We are to die to ourselves, right? Death is the way of this kingdom. John died for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus died to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven. You will not likely have to. It is not likely that you will directly die for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, although in your faithful death you die for the glory of Christ, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's likely that you will not have to give your life directly for this, but there are two things you must do. The first is this, you must die to yourself. There's a death that you are called to die every day. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just as we read of this gory death of John the Baptist, Just as we read of the gross and gory death of Eglon in the book of Judges, so we too are to be ruthless towards the principle of indwelling sin that is within us, and we are to, by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, seek to see those sins and that fleshliness dead at our feet. We are to fight in faith and courage because of Jesus Christ. The old Dan has to die. 
He has to die every day. And it is to be my goal to, by the power of the Spirit, to see the old Dan lying dead. Many of us will not have to give our lives, but very possible none of us will directly for the kingdom of God, but you must die a death every day. Because to have the insight of the kingdom is to say, all that is within me according to my old self, I must leave behind. That's what it means to be a part of this kingdom. So you must die to yourself. You must put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body, as it says in Romans chapter 8. And then finally, you must die in the Lord. You must die in the Lord. He has the power to keep you, and so you must abide in him. This is not to say, brothers and sisters, that you will die perfect, but you must die in him. You must die in him. We are to walk in faith, and we are to walk in faith unto the end. We are to walk in faith, understanding and knowing the kind of victory that Jesus has won. So in the book of Revelation, there are all of these calls for the faithful endurance of the saints. Cling to faith, cling to Christ. Why? Well, because we understand his victory. So it says in Revelation chapter 12, this, now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. As Christians, what are we called to do? We, we are called love not our lives even unto death. And even unto our dying day, we don't make it about ourselves, but we seek to continually die to the old man. And then we read in Revelation chapter 14, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth. But for those who worship the beast, they are to drink the wine of God's wrath, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then it says this, Here is a call for the faithful endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And then it says this, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. The idea, brothers and sisters, is that unto your dying day, the cross will never stop being what we need for forgiveness, and for eternal life. We don't move beyond it. So we do these two things. We die to ourselves. Living in Christ's death, we die to ourselves, and then we must die in him. Not perfectly, but if we must die in him, brothers and sisters, let us die well in him. Let us grow in grace and knowledge. Let us abound in works which please our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. If we must die, then let us die well. John teaches us about the kingdom and its relationship to death. Jesus does that centrally and ultimately. As John did, as Jesus did, let us look to the joy that is set before us. Let us walk by faith. Let us live in his death. Let us die to ourselves. And ultimately, let us die in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.